Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. As our theological worldview continues to intersect our cultural moment, we can't help but deal with some very sensitive topics, and one of those is gender issues. People being free to choose their gender. This is very sensitive and politically polarizing, but should it be? Should we have the same view as conservatives or liberals on this if we're going to have a biblical worldview? No, I'm just really glad to see you guys. I got to be honest with you. um, We've been in this series for a long time. This is part 10. It's one of the longest message series I've ever done. It's not the longest. It's one of the longest. And uh, I kind of planned most of this year out preaching-wise. I planned it out uh, over a year ago. I kind of mapped it out uh, on a prayer break I was having, a prayer and study break. And I kind of mapped it out, felt like God was really leading me in this direction. And um, I was getting with my wife about it, and I was kind of talking her through it a little bit a while back. And uh, she realized, I was explaining what the different message series were all about, and she realized, she said, well, this one, this one, this, this series, the one that we're in now, she says it's about the, you know, the worldview and, you know, the biblical worldview and how it intersects with our cultural issues of the day. And she said, are you sure you want to do that one right before an election? Because you don't like to be political. You don't want to endure, you know, she says, are you sure you want to do it? I said, don't worry, it's a midterm election. No one will know. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong about that. I, w- I had no idea that the election, this particular election, would be such a, a big deal the way it clearly is. Have you voted yet? I think early voting is open. I hope you will all plan to vote. If you haven't already, please vote. Um, but you won't hear me endorse a candidate We don't endorse political platforms. We stand for the word of God and we stand on the word of God. Thank you, the three of you that agree. Um, Tougher crowd than I thought. The hecklers were clapping. (laughs) Thank you for helping me out. Um, So yeah, I mean, but we... We know this is a pivotal key election that's coming up, and um, we're not going to be political, but there is a real fight going on. And it's not a fight between Democrats and Republicans. You and I both know that the path to victory in this fight is on our knees. Can I get an amen on that? Can somebody? It's on our knees. I mean, yes, you and I vote, but man, do we need to be praying for our nation. Uh, somebody was in, uh, I was just talking to somebody a few minutes ago talking about the, the crazy liberal stuff that's going on, you know, out in California. But our governor's race stands to take us even more liberal than California. So it's so important for us to be on this and not just to vote, but to pray, to pray. We should be praying for our candidates, praying for the election, praying for our nation, praying for our state, praying for our senators, everybody, everybody. We should be praying for our leaders. This is what we should be doing as Christians. So Diane came back. I said this in the earlier service, and Diane Fowler came to me, and she goes, well, how are we doing that? And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, we haven't had a call to prayer in a long time. And I said, you are right, and I am dumb. And so um, I'm, I'm going to call us to pray the night before the election. Uh, on that Monday night, November the 7th, we're going to have the building open. We're going to come together right here for about an hour or so, and we're going to have some structured prayer time. Um, that we haven't done in a long time. We've done this before. Uh, during the pandemic, we did it a few times. It was great. We had the 24-hour cycle of prayer, and it was fantastic. Uh, loved it, but we're just going to, I'm going to call. Will you come pray with me on Monday night, November the 7th? I mean, just come for an hour and pray. Just pray for an hour for our nation. We need it now more than ever, I think. So uh, I'm just asking you to, to, to come and to pray that night. There will be info about it all on our website and everything. We'll talk more about it, but that's just two weeks from tomorrow. So it's coming right up. 
So yeah, I, I really felt like we probably, nobody would really know this wouldn't be a big uh, deal as far as cultural politics go, but it really kind of is. And I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean it to be that way, but we got to talk about this stuff. Your kids need us to talk about this stuff. Your grandkids need us to talk about this stuff because if we aren't talking about it, the only people that are talking about it are the Marxist activists. And they want your kids. They want your grandkids. Some of them literally believe that they know better for your kids than you do. So we got to talk about this. We got to get this out because we, we, gotta, we gotta talk about God's plan for our lives. And that's why we're in this series right now. You know, I always say God speaks to me uh, on these prayer and study breaks that I go on and he saw fit to put this right here, right now. Maybe we're talking about it because maybe today, maybe today he wants to spark something in you. You know, maybe today, maybe today he wants to speak into your heart and get you up alongside that, that cousin that you got or that nephew or that niece who is struggling with this particular issue, with gender issues. And maybe, maybe the reason God had me talk about it today is because he wants you to talk about it tomorrow. Maybe he wants you to be praying for someone right now. So I hope it's okay for us to just dive into this, and I hope this will be helpful and beneficial and a blessing to you and to everybody. We're talking about how our biblical worldview intersects with our current cultural climate, and we got to talk about gender issues because everybody else is talking about it. So I... I started doing my research on this a while back, and boy, there's so much. There's so much. And when you say we're going to talk about gender issues, that's really an umbrella uh, term for a thousand things. But I want to try to distill it down specifically to this explosion of people who feel that they should transition from their birth sex to a different sex. I just want to speak to that for a little bit because I think God is really clear about this. I know people, I've, I'm related to people who feel that their birth gender is not the same as their real gender and that they need to make changes in their life. They need to, to do things about it, they want to change their pronouns. They want to change the way they dress and the way they talk and the way they live. They want to present as something that they aren't born as. And, and they're really struggling. They're really, truly, honestly struggling. I, I, I've got relatives struggling with this. You probably do also. So before we get into this, I just want to be really, really clear that we're not talking about a group of bad guys. We're talking about our friends and our neighbors, our brothers and our sisters. We're talking about real people. And we can never afford for one second to lose our heart for people. Jesus commands us to love God and what? Love others. In fact, Jesus says it's your ability to get it right with someone else that will determine your ability to get it right with God, right? He says, if you're standing in the temple waiting to make your sacrifice, you know, the thing you do to get right with God, and then you remember that there's something between you and a brother or a sister somewhere else, what does he say to do? Drop it, drop it, and go get it right. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how long you gotta travel. I don't care how much it costs, drop it. Don't even think about getting right with God unless you're right with your neighbor. So we love others. Are we good? Are we clear on that? So the question I want us to ask today is, it's the real struggle that I know a lot of people have. It's first blank on your page. Can God put a male soul in a female body? Can God put a male 
into a female body or a female into a male body? Can he do that? Can God make that level of mistake? And I just want to be I just want to be clear on this. I understand. I understand that if you are of a certain age, my age, 50s, 60s, if you're an old guy like me, this very question sounds ridiculous. I mean, it was just a few years ago, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh making fun of, of men trapped in women's bodies, and I was laughing and laughing and laughing about it. It was hilarious. It was a joke, right? Who in their right mind would have ever thought that one day in church, the pastor would be standing in the spotlight and asking this question? Ludicrous just a few years ago, but today, it may be one of the questions of today. I'm really grateful um, for the work of journalist Abigail Shirer. She wrote a book about this, and she's made some presentations about this, and she's helped me come uh, to you today with some kind of stats and facts and figures a little bit so that we can kind of understand what we're talking about here before we get into what God says about it. So I want to start off by defining our terms. Gender dysphoria is a real thing. It's a for real thing that many people deal with. It's a medically documented condition, and it's been documented for about 120 years or so, long as we've been, you know, keeping records of that kind of thing, pretty much. Gender dysphoria is the real feeling that your actual gender does not match your body. And this is a, a very serious thing. It can be uncomfortable. It can be very painful emotionally and even physically for the people who struggle with this. Historically, all throughout the history of this, uh, of this condition, um, it's been real small. It's been really, really small. It only affects, get this, 0.01% of the population. It's very small. Almost nobody's got it. In other words, uh, if you're of a certain age, you probably never went to high school with somebody with this, right? You probably never, never met somebody like this, but you came to know them somewhere in life. Usually, in almost every case, in this 0.01% of the population, the onset of gender dysphoria happens very, very young, like between two and four years old. And it usually appears in boys, not girls. Almost all of the patients with gender dysphoria historically have been boys, and, and you recognize it when you see it. You know, it's that, it's that ongoing, Mommy, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. When, when they can barely even say other words than that. Now, that doesn't mean that just because my grandson this week went in his mama's closet and put on her high-heeled shoes and pranced around the house, that doesn't mean that. That's not that, okay? Because every kid does that. You did it at one time, too. Don't look at me all tough. Oh, I'm a man. You did it one time, too. Every kid does that. But the onset is recognizable when a child is insistent and persistent and consistent in always asserting his femininity when he's a boy. No, mommy, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. You can see why this is confusing. It creates chaos in a person's life. It, it can be very emotionally painful to, to grow up feeling that you are in the wrong body. Imagine what that's got to do to a four-year-old, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old. Imagine living every day feeling like you've been put together wrong. 
but it's small. It's very small. A very small part of the population has this, and there's good news. There's actually good news. For approximately 70% of the people that struggle with gender dysphoria, there is a readily available, all-natural cure. It's called puberty. In about 70% of the cases, once their body goes through puberty and they get those hormones all in their body, they align properly and they move on. They forget about it. They just go on with life as a male, because most of them are male. The ones that don't get that, the other about 30%, those are the ones you came to know a little later in life. You know, they're the ones that later in life, they become the gay men or what we used to call the transvestites. And their objective is not to fool anybody, not to try to promote an agenda. They're just trying to gain peace with who they are. And most of them are very nice people. M- most, of, most of them are, are nice. I, I've got a couple of friends who are that way and they're actually some of the nicest people I know so it's been a very small thing and usually after puberty it's a much much smaller thing those people those adult men would go on to assimilate into society they would be considered the fringes of society and we would all just kind of figure it out together you know it's just kind of the way it was But now, something has changed. Things are very different today than they were 20 years ago. In fact, specifically since 2009, there has been a recorded, marked, noticeable, major change. I'll show you some statistics from the Tavistock Center, which is the largest gender clinic in the UK. In 2009, they treated a grand total of 51 people who presented as potentially trans. 51 in London. But in 2019, that same clinic treated 2,364 people. There's been a change. There's been a little bit of a change here. Not only that, but... Remember what I said, the, the, the onset of this happens early and in boys, it's mostly boys. In 2009, when they treated those 51 people, 31% of them were female and most of them were male. But by the time you get to 2019, it has completely flipped around and now 74% female and only 26% are male. So it's a lot more of both, but the real explosion has happened right here with girls. What is happening here? Anecdotal evidence says that up to 30% of girls in middle schools and in high schools are now identifying as bi or trans. 30%, and that statistic lines right up with what I've been told by administrators at Gilmer High School. So this is not some faraway thing in some big city somewhere. This is happening right here among our friends and our family members. Something is happening. Some major change has been going. Can you imagine that? If you're of a certain age, somebody identifying as by or trans in your high school, that would not have gone well for them. I mean, let's be honest. Back then, it would not have gone well for them. But something has changed. A Brown University researcher has called it rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I have read some books. I've read a couple of books about this. And what I think they are seeing now, what I think we are seeing in our society right now, cannot be attributed, this cannot be attributed to the species of humans changing. I mean, we've been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Have we really all of a sudden in the last 20 changed that much? 
I think what we're seeing now is not a, it's not a biological change. I think what we're seeing is actually a social contagion. It's a social contagion. Somebody else said it was a, like a mass delusion, and I don't like that term. I, I, just, I think that's not a very credible term, but social contagion, boy, I see that. I see that. I see it spreading through social connections. And even if you are a certain age, we've seen it before, right? This is how anorexia spread. This is how bulimia spread. People don't just wake up one day, oh, I think I'm anorexic. No, they saw it happening to others, and so they adopted the behavior themselves. It's a, we have a long history of this, especially among those teenage girls. Right? Many of these girls that are now presenting this way, they themselves report that they struggle socially, are depressive, and hate their bodies. And for the past two years, we've been in the midst of the greatest mental health crisis on record. Right? We've seen the highest levels of anxiety, of self-harm, and depression among teenagers than we have ever seen. We see it not just in teenagers, but in people your age, in my age. We, we sat around in our office a few weeks ago trying to figure out what do our people need the most. Well, that was the question. What do our people, how can we serve our people? And I'm thinking, you know, I don't know take meals to hungry folks or uh, give rides to, you know, infirm people to the doctor or something. I don't know. But around the room, everybody said anxiety and stress. Everybody, all anyone's talking about anymore is anxiety and stress. So, of course, it's affecting our teenagers. If it's affecting you, if you're telling Diane Fowler that your life is all about anxiety and stress, if you're telling Stephen Mansell that your life is all about anxiety and stress, how can you expect it to not affect our teenagers? especially when you think about the fact that if a young girl in high school comes out as bi or trans, all of a sudden she receives immediate acceptance, validation, popularity, plus she gets to stick it to mom a little bit. So the first question I've got about this is how should we see these people? How should we see these people? I just want to be clear about this. We're going to look at how God sees them in a minute. I want to just address how we should see them first. I think you and I, it's our responsibility to look at these people as victims of lies. They are soaked in lies. It's all over social media. It's all over the news media. Man, anyone who is even wondering about this issue, all they got to do is get on YouTube or Instagram, and they've got social media influencers begging them, you go ahead and make the change. It's wonderful. It'll solve all your problems. There are a thousand social media channels devoted to transing teenagers. Not only that, but these social media influencers, they also are victims of lies because they, they've been lied to over and over and over again by the activist Marxists. This all comes from the Marxist agenda to destroy the family unit. They've hijacked terms and they say stuff like, we wanna give them gender affirming care. In other words, we'll let the patient self-diagnose and then we'll affirm how they feel about themselves right now. We want to affirm what we can see clearly with our eyes. We want to affirm their own personal diagnosis. We want to get to them and we want to immediately help them medically transition. There are school systems here in our country where kindergarten teachers are trained to orient your class of kindergartners on the first day by saying to them, listen, I know somebody guessed your gender the day you were born, but only you, kindergartner, only you know your true, your true gender. So today, 
introduce yourself to the class and you tell them what pronouns you want to be addressed with. You tell them what gender you really truly are because only you, your mama may have told you, your daddy may have told you, but only you know. Right now in uh, many states across the nation, including in Georgia, Planned Parenthood can give puberty blockers to kids as young as 15 years old. I looked it up, and at Emory University, they say that a puberty blocking course is just a pause button on puberty. Just press pause so that you can wait and decide which of the puberties you'd like to go through. They lie. Puberty blockers such as Lupron, they are designed to shut down the part of the pituitary gland that's right in the middle of your head that catalyzes puberty. This is the drug that was used to chemically castrate sex offenders. And they want to give it to your children and your grandchildren if they just decide that they aren't what you guessed they were. That drug has never been FDA approved to halt a healthy puberty. I, I don't understand. I don't understand why in the heck any parent or any doctor would want to give a puberty blocker to a child. Uh, they've proven that when you go through a course of puberty blockers and then transition uh, to sex conditioning hormones, the result in almost 100% of the cases is irreversible infertility. And so we don't have enough data to really prove if this even works. All we know is the bad side effects. In other words, what we're doing is we're conducting science experiments on our children. The activists make the case, well, we can't wait, we can't wait. We need to stop puberty uh, and we need to push it off as long as possible because these kids are going through real pain. We need to help them transition as fast as possible because the suicide rate is very, very high among that demographic. The problem is the suicide rates stay high or possibly even increase once someone has gone through this. So there's no good studies showing a reduction in suicidal ideation or that they produce good health, physical or mental health outcomes. There's no study that shows that puberty blockers are safe. And we know that that course of action renders someone infertile for the rest of their lives. These people are victims, victims of lies, lies that are on the Emory website and every other gender clinic website. They're pawns in a scheme. What's the scheme? The chaos is the scheme. Not part of my sermon here. I'm just going to tell you the chaos is the scheme. The purpose, the goal is chaos. Um, in my research, again, I didn't get this in my message, but I got a few extra minutes because it's the second service. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but... The Marxist agenda is to destroy the family unit. And people who are going through this with the puberty blockers and crossing over their hormones, they all report that they are angry, sullen. They get very politically radical. They run from their family, their biological family, and they run to their glitter families. The whole agenda is to turn family against family. Brother against sister, neighbor against neighbor. The chaos is the goal. And that's the goal of your enemy, Satan. His goal is to destroy the family unit because really we can talk about the Marxists and we can talk about the activists and we can talk about the trans, but the bottom line is this, next blank on your page, this is a spiritual condition. It's a spiritual condition. One day, Jesus 
was talking to the people who were the most virtuous of all the people. They ticked off all of the boxes of the virtue signals of the culture in the day, the Pharisees. They had all the virtue signals you can imagine, but Jesus was talking to them and they literally could not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus looks at him in John 8 and he says, you can't even hear me. They had all the right boxes checked, all the virtue signals, but they could not hear the voice of Jesus. And he said to them, he explained to them, he said, because this is a spiritual condition. You've been deafened, you've been blinded by the lies, by the father of all lies. In John 8, 44, Jesus says he, that Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. The devil, the enemy of God, is out to corrupt and pervert his creation so that he can prove that God is not worthy of being God. He's out to prove that God can't create anything that Satan can't break and to say, ha ha, see, I could be a better God than God. God's not worthy of being God. These people around us, they are victims of lies and they're soaked in them. How does God see them? Well, I want to look in the scripture and see what God describes when he looks at us. We keep going back to the same passage week after week in this series because I think there's so much here. There's so much that God has packed into a tiny little space and it ought to just wreck us for how we look at other people. We ought to never look at our neighbor again the same way after we see this incredible description from God himself in Genesis 1. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is huge. It tells us not just where we came from, but who we came from. It tells us, it tells us what we were created for. And it shows us that our gender affirms the image of God. What? Yeah, I love this. So God created human beings in his own image. The Hebrew word for image here is the word selem. Everybody say it with me. Here we go. Selem. Yeah, selem. Selem. Selem the truth, man. So this word for image... The image of God. We see this word all throughout the Old Testament, and usually it refers to something specific. The word image here, selim, means something fabricated to represent something else. What is this word usually talking about? It's talking about idolatry. Usually you see this, it's talking about a, an idol of stone, wood, or clay. And God hates idol worship. Right? In fact, the second commandment. No, first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me, right? Second commandment is you shall make no graven image. And it's not a simple command. God kind of talks about this for a second in this commandment. He says, don't make a graven image. Don't bow down to it. Don't worship it. It's not for you. You don't worship idols. God hates idol worship because an idol that you or I make can only represent a false God, or it can only represent God falsely. And God says, uh uh, uh the image maker is not you, it's me. I've already made the image of myself, it's you. I have put you here to look like me. So when we make a graven image, when we idol worship, we are treading on God's territory. We're trespassing on his property. 
So he says, we are made in his image. That means that when God looks at you, I said this last week, when God looks at the homosexual, the bisexual, the transsexual, the LGBTQ, and whatever other initials they decide to add, when he looks at them, God can see a little bit of himself. Do you hear me? When God looks at the gay person, he sees a little bit of himself. That's hard for for people of a certain age to swallow because we used to beat them up in high school. You didn't want to say something like that out loud in high school, but, and I'm sorry for the flashing lights, it's just we just have connection problems or something. We spent $8,000 to fix that problem. (laughs) Good grief. Okay, so when God looks at them, he can see a little bit of himself. They are beautifully and wonderfully made in the very image of God. That's how God sees them. So let's look a little bit farther into this creation process. In Genesis 2, 21, the Lord God, I I love this passage. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. Doing my research this week, what I discovered uh, was that this word rib, um, somebody guessed at that. When we originally translated the Bible, we kind of just guessed at that. And that word is not the word. Yeah, I know, I know. It, it rocks you to your core. But the word here for rib is the word selah. It's a little bit like the other word, selah. And it's translated rib right here, but it's also, this word is also found 40 other times in the Old Testament. And nowhere else is it translated rib. In every other occurrence, the word Selah is used to describe the side or a part of a sacred structure like the tabernacle or the temple or even the Ark of the Covenant. So this is the part that God pulled from the man. I love that, I love that we guessed at the word rib You know, it talks about him opening up the side of the man. So it's a logical guess, I guess, right? But I love it. I always say, you know, uh, when God took that part, you know, he he took something right here beside the man. He could have gone for the head so the woman would be over him. Could have gone for the foot so that the woman would be beneath him. But he chose something right alongside and right near his heart. I think that's profound. So here, we clearly see, I think, that God has a high, holy view of our bodies. He sees them as part of a sacred structure and that God expresses himself through our sexual identity. Male and female, he created them. In the Hebrew mind, God is one whole, complete being unlike you. In the Hebrew mind, God is all masculine and all feminine. Now, I I just want to be clear. 100% of the time in the scripture, God chooses to reveal himself to us in the masculine. He always refers to himself as father, and he has given us his son. And the Holy Spirit is called a he over and over and over again. So he always reveals himself to us in the masculine, but he's a non-corporeal spirit being. He doesn't have a sexual identity because he's not physical, right? So in the Hebrew mind, he's complete. You know, we always say at the wedding, the two shall come together and become one. One complete picture of who God really is, all of masculine and all of the feminine. 
and he expresses himself through you as his image through your sexual identity in other words next mic on your page your sexual identity is sacred it's sacred it's holy it's the way God intended you to be it's the way he formed you in fact even the mission that God put us on here in this world is tied to our bodies right look at what he says to us in Genesis he says he blesses them and he says be fruitful and multiply be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and govern it reign over the fish and the birds and the little fluffy dogs right be fruitful and multiply this is a sexual command that God gives us at the beginning our purpose is tied to our sexual identity here in this world so God's made us to be a beautiful representation of himself but in all of us in 100% of us that beautiful image of God that beautiful expression of God has been obscured it's been broken and messed up because all of us have destroyed that beautiful image of God in us by our own sin you know, it happened all the way back in the garden. It happened all the way back there where we agreed with the accuser that God is not worthy of being God. Maybe I could be my own God. We rebelled against him. We became traitors against the holy king of the universe. When we sinned, everything broke. That's why there's disease and pain and suffering and war that's why there's abuse and neglect. That's why there's addiction. That's why all these things happen because of our own sin. We broke the whole world and we ruined the picture of God in us. It's still there, but it's really messed up by sin. And that's why God sent Jesus into this world. God sent Jesus here to heal and restore. His objective in your life and in my life is to pick you up and to start polishing you off, to start restoring that beautiful image of God in you so that you, every single day you're in a relationship with him, you more and more and more resemble the one that created you. In church world, we call that process sanctification. We're reading a book about that right now in our life groups. And this is what God wants to do. That's why he sent Jesus. He said, these people are broken. Let's win them back. So Jesus went to the cross on our behalf and he died in our place and he rose again. And his work in me, his work in you is to restore that faithful, beautiful image of God in each and every single one of us. The Apostle Paul had the same kind of high view of our bodies. I think that God does. Uh, so he's writing to this church, this kind of crazy church in Corinth. They had gotten into some bad practices, some bad sexual practices, and they were doing some bad stuff. Everybody knew how bad they were. And so Paul writes this letter to them, and here's what he says to them in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Do you see here how Paul uses you and your body interchangeably? Paul doesn't make the distinction between the, you know, real you and the physical you. For Paul, like for God... You are one complete being, mind, soul, and body. You come as a package deal. God designed and put that all together himself. And your body and the way you use your body can either honor or dishonor God. Your body and the way you use your body can agree with God that he's worthy of being God or can agree with Satan that he's not worthy of being God. 
But you, men and women, you are alive. You're being restored. All of you, God's work in you is in your mind, in your spirit, and in your body. In other words, next blank on your page, we can't separate the, quote, real you from the embodied you. It's all one picture. We're all going through this sanctification process. And I hope I'm winning. But I would be wrong. Because my goal is to lose. Right? Jesus says that if anyone's going to follow me, you must deny yourself. You don't want to win. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I, I think I want to win. I think I want it to be my way. I think I want to self-identify as whatever I want. But the reality is, if I want to follow Christ, his objective is to get rid of the old me and restore the image of God that's within me. And it's a fight. It's a fight every day. I'm just going to be honest, it's a fight. Bible says we're in this fight together. We're all soldiers in the army, and the battle is real. That's why the next series that I'm going to do starting next month, by the way, that means we'll be done with this series in another week or two. Nobody wants to say praise the Lord on that? <laughs> so um, the next series I do, we're going to start it in November. It's called Stand and Fight. And we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. Because I don't think we do that very well. I think we roll over, and I think we get defeated all the time and wonder why we're not more like Christ, wonder why we don't hear his voice, wonder, wonder why the world is going to crap all around us. It's because we're not standing and fighting. It's because we're not doing things like pray before the election. It's because we're not doing things like praying for our lost neighbor or speaking the truth in love to our family members. So that's what that next series is going to be all about. That'll be next month. But I want to be clear that while this is a fight, we are not fighting against the transitioner. We're fighting for the transitioner. We're not fighting against the activists. We're fighting for the activists. We're not even fighting against the Marxists. We're fighting for them. And we're fighting against Satan himself. That's the enemy of God. He's out to break everything because he wants to be God himself. And it's our lives lived in humble submission to Jesus. That's what glorifies God and that's what brings victory. You hear me? Our humble submission, not my arrogant defiance, not my stand up and argue. It's my humble submission to Christ that glorifies God and brings victory. You know I share this next verse all the time because it's one of my favorites. It's really one of my favorites. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. I just want to pause right here. I want to be really, really clear. It's easy. It's easy for us to get all outraged at all the stuff that's going on in the world. It's easy for us to get mad at all that stuff that's going on. We can't believe it, and we shake our heads. Can you believe what the governor of California did? Can you believe what this senator did? Can you believe what the Biden administration did? Can you believe and be outraged and angry? And so it's real easy for us to set up this whole thing that we are the only ones that are good. We're good, they're bad. We're good, we got it going on and they're bad. It's really, really easy for us to fall into that satanic trap. Because the scripture is really clear that God saved you. You didn't save yourself. You contributed nothing. You contributed nothing to your salvation except for the sin that you brought to it. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Go on to that next part. 
It says our salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. I don't deserve any kind of reward because I'm not it. None of us can boast about it for we are God's masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. It's not me. I haven't built a great, wonderful, fantastic life where I'm smarter than everybody else. I am God's masterpiece. Another translation says we are God's workmanship. But I like this word better, masterpiece. Because the Greek word here for masterpiece, I know I've said it a hundred times, but it's the Greek word poema. And it's the word from which we get the English word poem. Literally, we are God's artistic expression of himself. We are his image. He has manufactured us, has crafted us, in exactly the way he wanted. And he's still doing that in you and in me and in Christ. We are his masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us to do long ago. Good things, not outrage. Good things, not anger. Good things, not blame. Good things he's created for us to do. Listen, there's plenty of reasons to be outraged in this world, but outrage will not change the world. Why don't we try fighting this battle the exact opposite way, and let's try love and grace instead? Why don't we stop buying what, I'm sorry, but what Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity want to sell us? And let's be people of love and grace. Let's be people who live Christ, who express the heart of God for people around us. Yes, please vote. Please get all of your friends and neighbors to vote. But I promise you, we won't change the world without rage. It'll only happen through love and grace. Hey, prove Satan wrong. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Walk with them. Listen to them. Affirm the masterpiece that's hidden in there and seek to bring it out. We're not going to win with anger and outrage. Last blank on your page, we only win with love. We only win with love. Thank you.